This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Thank you, my friend. And good morning to all my other friends. Good morning, church. Let's turn to Mark 14. We are going to finish out the chapter. It's a long text, though. There are 20 verses that we're going to cover today, beginning in verse 53 all the way to verse 72. So 72 verses all in all in Mark 14. So find your place there on whatever platform you have the scriptures, whether it's a book, Bible, digital device, Mark 14. So I am coming into this moment with a challenge of my emotions. This past week in studying this text has been a gift to me. I don't recall, it's been a long time since I've been a text of scripture where I have been so encouraged and so at rest just in the storyline of what Jesus is doing in my own life, my own family. And yet at the same time, my emotions are, it's not that I'm sad, I'm tender. So I feel like if just anything just like barely pokes me, point is, I don't know what you're going to get this morning. You may get weeping, uh, you may get just delightful joy and encouragement. Um, I'm feeling the tension of both because this truth is for me. And yet I want so desperately to be able to share it with you. Something um, in the midst of my study yesterday, uh, I am sitting in my chair and I have like 20 some books. It looked really impressive. There were these books just scattered everywhere and I'm looking here and here and it's like, this is really cool. And Tammy came home and she disappeared into the basement, which I thought was odd because the basement's not finished. So she's down there and all of a sudden I hear grunting and groaning and and noises and banging and boxes like banging on the floor and then all of a sudden loud footsteps and here she comes. We've been in the house four years and we still have boxes. We have no idea what's in them. So she is unpacking still and she's bringing books up in these boxes to be able to put on the shelves. So several trips of that, up and down, up and down. I asked her if she wanted help and she said no. And I'm listening and all of a sudden it went silent down in the basement. It was like no noise. That's odd. Ten minutes later, little pitter-patter steps, and she comes walking up, and she said, Honey, you need to see this. This is going to make your day. And she hands me this piece of paper. And this is a poem written by my son, who I actually talked to yesterday and have his permission to be able to share this this morning. This was written in his cursive handwriting sometime during elementary school. Not sure when, probably first, second grade. And it's written to me, to dad. And so I wanted to read it to you this morning. It's entitled, A Poem. (laughs) I'm sorry for being ugly, angry, and bad. I disappointed you, and that makes me sad. I'll do better next time. Just wait and see. I'll be the best that I can be. I blamed Andrew for starting the fight, (laughs) but I thought about it that very night, and I'm going to set it right. I disobeyed you, made you sad. I was being just downright bad. Please forgive me, for now I see that I disobeyed Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. (laughs) I love you, Dad. Don't be sad. Please pray for me not to be bad. Right? Love Caleb. When I read that to Caleb yesterday, he just responded. He went, oh, dang. (laughs) (laughs) Now, 
this was the exact same response as the first service. It's this, the response I, I anticipated, and that was warm, fuzzy, every parent in here. Does that not just melt your heart? But for me, there was that, there was that definitive moment. I'm sitting in the chair, and I read that, and I just, I smiled. I just cheered up, and I remembered, I remembered my son when he was just a little guy. Such a tender, sweet spirit. But then all of a sudden, my emotion, it, I got poked. I got triggered. Because God is writing the story of my life right now, too. And I flashed back, and I remembered some conversations in not too many recent years where I began to, at the Lord's prompting, ask my kids to begin to speak into my life, which I'd never done before. And I can remember one of the things that they said, somewhat in, in kindness and in, in a little bit of um, jesting maybe, but there was truth, and that was, Dad, you have no idea when we were little kids how much we feared your look. And I, I didn't really know what that meant. And then the Lord opened it up to me. And I, when I read this, I began, as much as I was so thrilled to see this and hear this again, I began to wonder, I wonder how much of this, Caleb, that was in your heart that I perhaps had prompted because of a look that I gave you when you aired of disappointment maybe even anger, that the rules that we had set up for not fighting had been transgressed and it was a personal offense to me and, and I perhaps in my look gave a look of accusation, frustration, anger, and hurt. And that look is all common to me because when I was a kid, I got that look from my dad and I can remember the hurt in my heart because I wanted my dad to be able to look at me with safe love I wanted to make him happy make him proud so in my adult life I've realized I've taken on some of those those flaws the same brokenness that has been in the generational line of my dad and grandfather and who knows how far back has followed and traced itself right into this body right here. But that's what makes this text so incredibly important and really special. I did really good the first service. I didn't cry at all, did I, Mo? Not one time. Maybe because my kids are here. I've entitled this From Brokenness to Restoration. Etching your story with the look of Jesus. Can I just simply say this? Your brokenness and my brokenness, no matter how epic and horrible it may be, whether it's the guilt of your own doing, your own choices, your own faults and failures, or if it's just the trauma of someone else's faults and failures that have been inflicted upon you, Whatever your brokenness may be, hear this. Your brokenness may mark you, but it does not define you. Brokenness serves as a platform for restoration. And this text is going to highlight for us through an amazing story. Hear me say this really clear. When we study the book of Mark, John Mark is the author. He's the one who wrote these words but he really is an amanuensis. That's a word that simply means he was a, a secretary, if you will, who wrote down words that were being dictated to him by Peter. When you read the storyline of Mark, Mark himself is just a teenage boy at the time. It would be years later when he was with Peter that Peter would account all of these events. And so in essence, we're actually reading the witness of Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, okay? Peter, though, very rightly does not make the book of Mark about himself. The book of Mark is about Jesus. He is the focal point. He's the leading actor. He's the leading role of this story. But it's fascinating to me as we travel through and as we've been studying the book of Mark 
just kind of planted throughout, we, we hear Peter mention storyline about himself. And we find out about who Peter is. And we're going to come to an epic moment this morning where it's amazing to me how Peter, contrasted by the other three gospel writers who talk about this same event, Peter goes into more graphic detail to highlight the epic failure of his own soul and heart. He goes on record for millions and millions of people to hear his story of failure for 2,000 years now. And yet there's something that allows him to do this that speaks more about what he was delivered from from and rescued from than what he wallowed in. I'm excited to get into this. And I trust that whoever you are and wherever you come from, whatever your story is, that you will find the look of Jesus and etch it into your story and your soul. Spirit God, make the book live in our hearts. God, cause the book to show us ourselves. Make the word reveal our Savior. Amen. Mark 14, let's jump right in and dive right in. I believe the text is up on the screen. Behind you, we'll start at verse 53. Um, let me point out one observation real quick about this. In all the other accounts, the three other Gospels, it seems like the writers, they, they distinctly place this storyline as two separate events, almost like it happened in two different times. Mark is unique in that he doesn't do that. He actually combines the two so that the two events, Jesus' trial and the denial of Peter, are happening simultaneously in a timeline. So they're not two separate timelines. And I'll point out where Peter makes that clear. Let's start in verse 53. And they, that would be the mob that just came with Judas, who arrests Jesus and takes him. They lead Jesus to the high priest, would be Caiaphas. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. That would form the Sanhedrin, 71 of them. 70 general members of what would be the Supreme Court of the Sanhedrin with one president. That would be the high priest Caiaphas. And here's where Peter drops himself into the story and tells us that actually during the events of this trial, this kangaroo court that was set up to try Jesus, Peter is right there in the midst of it. He says, and Peter, or if he was in first person, and I had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the very high priest. And I was sitting with the guards and warming myself at the fire. And then he jumps back and he begins to give us the facts of this trial. Verse 55. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this... Their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But in fulfillment of Isaiah 700 years before this, Jesus remained silent and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one? the son of the blessed, a reference to the God of Israel. And Jesus said, Ego eimi, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, a reference to Psalm 110, and coming with the clouds of heaven, a reference to Daniel. And hearing this, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, who hit you? 
And the guards received him with blows. And now Peter picks up his version of what is happening during this time. By the way, just as a note, that section that I just read, so much powerful truth in the trial, the kangaroo court of Jesus. Just to suffice to say, at a minimum, the Sanhedrin in this one event broke eight of their procedural trial laws. It was illegal. It was unjust. The only thing that Jesus was guilty of was absolute innocence. What I want to focus on, though, is this story that Peter tells about himself. And it's not pretty. Verse 66, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, this would have been within earshot and eyesight of Jesus. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with, and here's a very derogatory term of ridicule, the Nazarene. Remember, no good thing comes from Nazareth. You were with the Nazarene, this Jesus, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. A reference to, as Matthew puts it, his accent. He was not from those parts. It'd be like someone from Minnesota coming in here and talking to us. We would realize they're not from here. Verse 71, it escalates. Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know. Listen to this. He doesn't even reference Jesus by his name. He says, this man. I don't even know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then these five words. And he broke down. Six words. And wept. Peter's telling us his story. I'd like to go back and as best as you can, just trace with me some just, we're going to parachute into a couple of mentions of text and let's, let's tell the entire story of Peter with three words. The first word would have been very familiar to Peter because he's a Jew and Hebrew would have been the national language coming out of the origin of the nation of Israel at that time, Israel. Um, Israel. It's the word that I'm going to categorize the first part and largest part up to this point of Peter's life. It's the word chutzpah. It's a Hebrew word, often used today in the States in Yiddish communities. There's a German dialect that's mixed with a little bit. But when someone has a special audacity, they say, this guy's got some chutzpah. He's got courage. Generally, the word means audacity. But it's interesting, there's a high point and a low point to this word. Almost a best case chutzpah and a, a worst case chutzpah. The best case chutzpah means reckless courage, shameless endeavor. That'd be the high point. The low point, arrogant, insolence, self-confidence, self-reliance. As you think through the book of Mark that we've studied and as Peter is accounting to Mark to write these words, you remember some of the chutzpah that Peter evidenced. You remember in chapter 6, Jesus is in the boat. Who's the guy that jumps out of the boat and tinkle toes across the, the water for just a little bit before he, he drowns, not drowns, sinks? Peter. Reckless courage. I said tinkle toes. Twinkle Maybe there was a little tinkle, too. I, I promise you that's not in my notes. It really isn't. 
Fast forward chapter eight. Just go quickly. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus predicts this very event of the trial. And Jesus pulls him aside, or, or Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, you're wrong. Stop talking like that. He rebukes Jesus. Later, he corrects Jesus about this very event. Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. Peter says, not happening. All my other disciples, they might throw you under the bus, but not me. In fact, I'm going on record, I will die with you before I deny you, Mr. Chutzpah says. Then in this very text, we see that Peter Once the mob comes and takes Jesus away, Mark tells us in the text that all of the disciples fled at that moment in fear of their life. And yet Peter, almost like a a really cool movie, you can see Peter stealthily like sneaking and just hanging out and waiting for the right moment. He follows this mob and he makes his way. If you want an interesting account, read Matthew's account of how he actually gets in to a sacred, very protected and guarded place into the the place or the palace, if you will, of Caiaphas, the high priest. And he sits there among the very men who just moments before had witnessed him lop off Malchus's ear. Peter is a chutzpah dude. He's got reckless courage. He's arrogant. He's impudent. He speaks his mind. He would have been a real leader until the moment comes when something happens that catapults him into the history of epic failure. It's interesting what this was, what precipitated his denial. I'd like you to look at verse 66. As Peter was in the below in the courtyard, One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and interesting, here's what the text says, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him. Interesting, there's a contrast. First she sees, then she looks. Greek is a fascinating language. Did you know for our one word look in the English, there are 18 Greek words for our one word? word in look. It gets very, very specific. This one word look is very different from the word see. Kind of put yourself into the scene. Servant girl comes out. There are men sitting by the fire. The firelight is bouncing off of the faces and she's looking around just observing as a servant girl would do to attend to the men that are there. And so she sees Peter among the crowd, but he doesn't stand out until Something triggers her, and she then looks. The word look here in the Greek means a fixed, penetrating gaze or stare. In a Jason Bourne, James Bond way, that means Peter just got made. Peter was in the gaze of an accusing stare by a servant girl, Mr. Hutzpah is about to be broken down by a little girl. It's fascinating that that's all it would take for a guy who would wield his sword and pop off his mouth, rebuke, correct, contradict Jesus himself. And yet if you go through, it's interesting that this look, this penetrating gaze by the girl begins to break him down three times. Notice the first time the girl says, you were with this man, this Nazarene Jesus. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. That was a lie. Later on, he moves because of discomfort. He moves away and goes into the outer courtyard. And yet the servant girl apparently follows and is now talking to some of the bystanders. And then she finally says, no, you, you're one of them. What does that mean? She's now narrowed this down. He's one of the He's one of the disciples of Jesus. He wasn't just with Jesus. He's one of Jesus' followers. This is very specific. To which he says, I'm not. I'm not one of them. He throws all of his buddies under the bus in that moment. And then the third time, as the crowd begins to hear the chatter, finally the men, as they start observing and watching They start looking at Peter. They recognize his dress. They hear his Galilean accent. And then they go on record a third time and say, yes, 
you are one of them. To which Peter denies again, I am not. And then he, the Bible says, begins to curse and to swear. This does not mean that Peter is starting to use profanity. He's not starting to cuss, as we would call it. In the swearing and cursing, what he is doing in a Jewish context is bringing upon himself the divine judgment and punishment to the highest degree by Jehovah God. He's literally saying, anathematizo is the Greek word. We get our word anathema, which means to excommunicate, to cut off. In essence, Peter was in front of all of these people, probably with a raised voice, saying, I am not this one. I don't even know this man. In fact, I swear to God, God be my witness. God cut me off as a Jew from the God of the Jews. God strike me and permanently sever me. If this is not true, Peter was actually bringing condemnation in the highest, most weighty way upon himself. What I think is fascinating is that Peter is telling us this. I can almost picture where of four Gospels, the other three would go on record giving us this detail, but the guy to who it actually happened to, if it were you, would you want to talk about it? I mean, let's be honest. When's the last time you sat down with someone and you went there? The story was not just the resume, cherry-picked perfectness of who you are and all the glowing reports, but it actually is the part about where you're broken at your core, where you experience pain and hurt and Maybe addiction, continued sinful transgression. It's the shame center of where you live. When's the last time you did that? I find it fascinating that Peter, among all four accounts, is the most vivid and detailed. How could he do that? I'm going to submit to you there's some fascinating evidence in the text. We're now going to see it. In those last six words of verse 60, or excuse me, 72. Peter, the Bible says, he broke down and he wept. Something fascinating here. Mark writes down, and he broke down and he wept. Mark used a word in the Greek language, it's epibolon, which to this day, we're, we're 2,000 years into now what are works of translation from the Greek language into English and all the languages of the world. And to this day, no one knows what that word means. For those of you who are grammarians, here's something fun to go play with. It is a compound single participle without an object. Okay, just go play with that. Reading linguist after linguist, they have resolved themselves to say that for the ages, this is a puzzling mystery with which they are certain and now relegated to never understand until heaven. Here's what we're suggesting here. The text says he broke down and wept. The participle is the word he broke down. If you look at some translations, like the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, it just says, he wept. It leaves out whatever translation, interpretation that word might mean. Other translations suggest that it's some kind of breaking down or that he threw himself down on the ground. Some say that he threw something over his head. The point is, we don't know what in this moment happened that resulted in his weeping. Whatever it was, it was a turning point. It was the moment at which Jesus said earlier, Peter, Simon, Simon, he said, Satan desires you. The first you is plural, referencing all of the disciples. He's already entered personally into Judas's body. 
and then betrays Jesus. But Satan came and wanted all 12. And Jesus said, he wants to sift you like wheat. But then he says to Peter, but I have prayed for you. The you there is not plural, it's singular. He looks at Peter and says, I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. Jesus knew this moment was coming. And whatever happened in this moment, when he began to curse and to swear, and the rooster crows, in that moment, something took place that caused him to weep. My question is, what is it? And I'm puzzled by this, because for some reason, Mark, Peter did not instruct Mark to include this. I don't know why. I can't suggest to you why. I've been racking my brain. I've been praying for the Holy Spirit to reveal it to me this week, and I got nothing for you. Except Luke, the physician, who's pretty detailed, which I'm glad physicians are like that. Hopefully they tend to capture and find things that most of us don't. Luke says something very, very distinct. Next slide is this passage. Talking about the same event from Luke's account. And immediately while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then here's new information. None of the other accounts have this. It says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 18 words for that one word look. Guess what? Same exact word. Servant girl saw and then looked. Meaning this. This wasn't just a glance. Jesus, after having been buffeted and beaten, being led out to the guards who would then do the same thing to him, looked with a fixed, penetrating gaze into Peter's soul. And I have a question for you. Do you think it was a look of accusation? Of condemnation? I told you so, Peter. I told you you'd do it. Better listen to me next time. Was it disappointment? Was it anger? Think about this. How did Jesus look in that moment, physically, as a human? Isaiah tells us, 700 years before, he goes on record and he writes these words. There were those who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. The skeletal structure in his face would have been broken. His bones would have been chipped and splintered. The skin would have been lacerated and bleeding. His flesh torn and ripped. You literally could not recognize him as a human, the Bible says. And yet before his eyes had swollen shut, the eyes of Jesus Christ penetrated into Peter's soul. And I have to ask you, what kind of gaze was that? As Peter for the first time begins to realize the blows that Jesus is now receiving are the blows that he deserves. And yet, the blows that Jesus is taking on to himself, they're not a sense of retribution of, see what I'm doing for you? It's Peter. I love you. I cherish you. My compassion is placed on you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not frustrated that I have to go through this. The Bible says it pleased the Father to crush his own son. And for the first time in Peter's story, he gets it. This grace, this love, this compassion flows into his soul. And whatever the word in Mark means, we don't understand it. Something happened in his soul. I believe it's just repentance. And repentance is a gift of God, the Bible says. It's God's grace that leads anyone to this moment. Thank be to God. And in this moment, Peter becomes overwhelmed by this look of Jesus and he he weeps. And in the Greek word, it's an ongoing, continual weeping. And I would suggest to you that the chutzpah that then became denial, the third word that we can sum up, and this is the the encouraging part of Peter's story, and I want to say to us, if you're looking for a place to fit in this story, I suggest you kindly, you're not Jesus, so don't think that you're him. You're not him in this story. But could you be Peter? 
How many chutzpahs do we have in here? Self-reliant. Courageous. Ego-centered. Committed. Get it done. Get her done. Pop off the mouth. Leader. At least in your own mind. And yet you have deep brokenness. You may not have denied Christ. You may not have cursed and sworn and invoked an actual excommunication upon yourself like Peter did, but you've got your brokenness. I've got mine. But here's what Jesus' look offers any one of us. Complete and full restoration. It's fascinating because you, from this point in Mark to the end of Mark, you don't read anything else about Peter at all. It's like you just, what happens to him? Except for one mention. And this is, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Where did Peter go that night? We know that four days go by. Jesus is then led off to Pilate. We'll study in this next week, next Sunday. He's crucified. He's buried for three days, three nights. He rises again. And in Mark chapter 16, it gives the account of Mary and Martha going to the tomb, thinking they're going just to anoint the body with spices. They find the body's not there. There's an angel sitting there. And the angel instructs him this. And here's the mention. The angel says this to the, to the women. Go tell the disciples and Peter where to find Jesus. Now, at first glance, it's like, okay, so he told the disciples and Peter. What was Peter? A disciple. Except he just excommunicated himself from being a disciple. What do you think Peter, even though in that moment there was repentance, what do you think Peter was thinking those four days? The Bible tells us they were all disillusioned. They all went their own way. In fact, they all eventually went fishing again. But the kindness of Jesus was, go tell all the other disciples, which by the way, all of the disciples had heard wind now and heard story of what Peter had done. Do you think they were considering Peter one of them? By his own words, he was no longer part of them. But here's the goodness of our God. Just because you've screwed up does not mean you're done. In fact, I left out a little piece of what Jesus said earlier when he predicted that Simon Peter would deny him. He then encourages him, I've prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And then he says this, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You may have a whopper of a story. And it may be, in your words, a good one. It may be a hard one. But whatever you have done is not beyond the grace of God to restore you fully for usefulness. You're not damaged goods. You're not used up and dried up. Your brokenness is simply a platform to not be defined by your brokenness, to be marked by it, but to be defined by your restoration. The Bible goes on to tell us in the book of Acts, written by Luke, interestingly, the physician, the first full 12 chapters are dedicated to how Peter became the leader of his brothers. From being excommunicated from them to becoming the leader. All kinds of stories how Peter boldly stands up in front of the very Sanhedrin that beat Jesus that night and said, sorry, can't do it. You tell me that I can't preach in the name of Jesus? I'm telling you I can't but not do it. Do what you want. You decide. Is it better for me to obey you or to obey, oh God? Sign out. I'm back tomorrow morning. And that's exactly what he did. In the name of Jesus, which he said, who he had denied, there is no other name written among men whereby you must be saved. That's Jesus. He goes on in 1 Peter 5, encouraging those in the diaspora under the persecution of Nero. He writes himself. Here, here's a guy who just absolutely miserably failed Chutzpah, broken. And he writes to the Christians, his brothers, and encourages them and says this, place your anxieties, your burdens, your weight, place your story upon Jesus, for he cares for you. 
Be sober. Be vigilant. Because you do have an enemy that is like a lion, roaring, wandering about, seeking to devour you, sift you like wheat. It's true. But know this. After you've suffered a little while, there will be a time where this Jesus will come along and will rescue and will take you, restore you, confirm you, heal you, use you. And then he says, to God be the glory now and forever. What a story. I mean, that's big time. Epic failure? Yes, but completely eclipsed by the Savior who looks with love. I had no idea some years ago how profound the sovereignty of God would be to bring me to this moment now, standing here preaching this text, talking about the look of Jesus and etching that look onto your heart and your story. Until one day, my daughter at the time, who I was convinced was rebelling against God and her parents and everything she'd ever been taught, came home with a tattoo. And I looked at her. I fixed penetrating gaze in my brokenness. And I looked at the tattoo, and here's what it is. You can come see it. Michaela, is Michaela in here? She's in deeper. There it is. I was like, what? Yeah, it's etched. <laughs> Forever. But I'm not against tattoos. I really am not. Just to go on the record. I don't have any, but I'm not against it. She wrote this big, long story how that she came across a song and it was called The Look and the chorus talks about forever etched upon my mind and it had gospel context in it and I didn't hear any of that. All right, I'm being poked. <clears throat> Let me read the chorus to the song. Forever etched upon my mind is the look of him who died, the lamb I crucified. And now my life will sing the praise of pure atoning grace that looked on me and gladly took my place. When Michaela came home with that tattoo that day, I don't know that to that point in time I had really ever seen the look of Jesus. My understanding of the look was a look of disappointment, a look of frustration, a look of anger. In fact, it was almost like this vision, this dream that I constantly had of me and Jesus. And between me and Jesus was this great big pile of dung. And it was my dung. It was my mess, my brokenness. And on the other side is Jesus. Now, he's my Jesus. He's my Savior. But his arms are folded. He's got a little bit of a scowl. And he's just got this look to him. It's the look of the servant girl. And it's as if Jesus was constantly saying to me, David, we, we could really be okay, you and me, if you could just do something with this. We'd be okay. And I longed for this different look, but I never saw it until several years ago. In my story, some of the, the hiding places of my brokenness that had never been yet coming out into light because of fear and distrust and all kinds of reasons and things I didn't, wasn't even aware of, identity issues. God used my daughter with a tattooed arm with the word etched on it for the first moment on a phone call with me to ask me questions. We're sitting in the floor of my bedroom closet with the doors shut and the lights turned out. All I can tell you is that in my daughter's voice and what she said, for the first moment, I saw the look of Jesus. And it 
changed me. Whatever that word means in Mark, I have no idea what it means. I can tell you it's happened to me. And I wept. Now, I'm not perfect, and I still struggle. And if someone offends me, I've still got a different look that I'm working on. But here's what I do know. Every time I make that look, I know that look has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the look back at me is not, I told you so, wish you wouldn't have done that. It's, I paid the price for you because you're mine. And it's changed me. So now... Some years later, when I look back and I look at this tattoo and I look at the word and then for our family, God's still doing a work within our family. He's restoring us. And it's easier for me to sit down with some of you and tell you my story now, even though I, I don't like talking about it. And yet there's this ring of peace. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. The chastisement brought into us peace. By his stripes we are healed. Are you needing healing this morning? It's available. It doesn't have yet to happen. You don't have to go do anything. You don't have to clean up any pile. Just know this. Whoever the one is that's been looking at you with accusation, with condemnation, with displeasure, that's not this Jesus. He is looking this morning with arms open wide. He has paid it all. It is finished. It is done. If you need Jesus, perhaps you've tried many Jesuses in your life. Would you come to this one? Would you receive him? Place your faith and your trust in him. And if you have and you're still struggling with the tension of your story, I get that. I understand it. But know this. It's not about how you look at Jesus as much as he's looking at you. I'm going to finish by playing this song. It's not a real peppy song. It's pretty contemplative, pretty slow. It's fascinating, though, that this very text, the lyrics of the song, guess who wrote them some 200-plus years ago in the 1700s, a guy named John Newton, who also wrote a song we sing all the time, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. He wrote this song. Another guy I know has written a different tune and taken those words and the song is simply entitled The Look. We'll play it when it's finished. We're done. If you need to talk, if you need to cry, if you need to dance, shout, whatever you need to do, go do it. There's people out at the prayer porch out here. We ask that God would make the book live in our hearts. Has he? We asked him to show us ourselves and to show us Jesus. Has he? The grace of God poured out on any sinner, no matter the brokenness, whoever flees to Jesus in repentance, whoever flees to God in this hour of need, this great king in his trial and suffering has made your rescue and your restoration and your usefulness acceptable and possible without exception. Listen to these words and see the look of Jesus and may it be etched into your story. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood Who fixed his loving eyes on me As near his cross I stood And never till my dying breath Will I forget that look It seemed to charge me with his death Though not a word he
conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look he said, I freely overbear. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might Look of him who died. 